This comes from Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 24. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of our Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, Mike, and the message that you've put on his heart this morning. Lord, I I pray that your voice would carry through this message, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. So have you ever watched a movie and immediately, immediately, you recognize with a character. Um, it should come as no surprise, as a father of two little girls, uh, when that, that I'm that guy moment happened for me, uh, it, was, it revolved an animated Disney movie. Um, and so, I remember watching Toy Story, and almost as soon as Buzz Lightyear came onto the stage, on, onto the scene, that's me. I'm, I'm Buzz Lightyear. And Buzz begins the movie as this brash, would-be hero and savior of the planet. His tagline is, to infinity, there we go, okay, it was like, there we go, we got it, to infinity and beyond. And the problem is that he seems to forgive that he's just a toy, that he has no idea that he isn't real. But Buzz actually thinks he has come from a distant planet to save Earth, and he, you, you'll see him constantly call back to the mothership, and, and, and whenever she doesn't respond, she must be just out of range. At a critical point in the movie, it begins to dawn on Buzz that he is uh, just a toy and may not be able to save the day. And he, suggest, and he struggles with this realization and, and resists it. So he tries to leap into action one time and he jumps off the second story uh, and he actually fall, his arm falls off. And at this point, he realizes that he can't fly, that he's just a toy. And he enters into this deep depression about who he really was. And he think, he, and I just have this sense that there's a similar narrative going around here in Acts 12. So if we think about the whole story of Acts 12, it starts off with earlier on, they, they killed your Stephen. They've killed your James, and they've arrested Peter. You're in this vast Roman empire, and you still can hear Jesus' voice saying, but I, the, I, the, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and I will give you power. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And just like Buzz Lightyear, we know that earth is not our home. And every time we radio to the mothership and hear nothing, we just assume she's just out of range. Your best guys are getting picked off. Progress is not happening in the time frame you've wanted, and you're beginning to cry out, how long, O oh Lord, how long, O oh Lord? 
the questions start to arise in your mind about what the future of this movement is for Christianity and, if, and whether, or not, whether or not God is big enough to pull it off. And so for all the Thomases among us, we see God in Acts 12, 20 through 24, answer all those doubts on whether he really is mighty enough. The chapter starts with Herod arresting James and Peter and having James executed. Now we see through Herod's death, God himself acts against those who usurp his power and his position and claim divine honors for themselves. And he displays his power with all the how long, O Lords. And I think this is what we see, and this is the big idea for this morning. The driving impulse of God's heart is for his people to rest in the confidence of his enduring and eternal power. Let me say that again. The driving impulse of God's heart is for his people to rest in the confidence of his enduring and eternal power. Can I just pray for us real quick? Father, even as preparing uh, this week, it has just been a difficult time because you really realized so much and revealed so much about my own heart and spirit. Father, my prayer is that this message first and foremost, exalts you. So be with us now and allow us to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. And as we conclude our study in Acts, I think it's important to see three things. First of all, uh, the hero we ought to worship. So that's the first thing. The hero we ought to worship. The worthy of worship, excuse me. The tension we can't escape. And the resolution we can't remedy on our own. And so let's look at the text again. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last breath. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Point one, the hero we can worship. Acts 12 is all about Herod and God. And God is the hero in this drama. And we see God put Herod in his place in a series of ways. And, and what I mean by put him in his place, that comes from Luke 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Herod is put down for his self-exaltation in replace of God-exaltation. And this is what we see in Acts 12. And so if you remember last week, Wamba kind of alluded to it. And what he talked about too is the first thing that we see that God is the hero in this narrative is that we see that God rescues Peter right from under Herod's nose. He takes his prized possession from him right under his nose. And so if you see in verse 4, it says, he tells us uh, that Herod intended to bring Peter out for a public execution after the Passover. Then verse 5 says the church was praying and God sends an angel to rescue Peter, showing Herod in the process that he has no say in who God decides to set free. And so now, and we see in verse 11, Peter even realizes this, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting God rescued Peter from Herod. God rescued Peter from Herod. God showed Herod who was more powerful 
He showed Herod and the church and us today that when James was, mar was martyred just days before, it was not because that God couldn't save him. It was not because he was weak. It was not because he was incompetent or checked out. It was because, among other reasons, Jesus even said to James, the cup that I drink, you will also drink. Some bear witness through death and others through life. God can release and God can sustain and empower even in death. God is in control over Herod in both cases, James and Peter. And this is where I think we struggle. I'll just be honest. As, as finite people, we walk through heartache, tragedy, and loss, and we ask the why God questions. What I often fail to realize is as a Christian, the way that I walk through tragedy has a powerful spiritual effect on those around me. It puts them face to face with eternity. It shows the reality of faith. It strips away the petty pursuits and the trivial anxieties in our lives. Just as James, Jesus told James he drank from the same cup, he reminds the disciples, and I believe us, to expect hardships, to expect them. John 16 says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. It's not a question. You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. There's so much comfort in that in the midst of it. God didn't fumble the ball with James and then score a touchdown with Peter. If God allows the other team to hold on for the ball for a couple of plays, it's because he knows a better way to win. Next, God takes Herod's life. Right in the middle of one of his lavish demonstrations of self-exaltation, Herod crosses the line in, in, of God's patience. And in verse 23, it describes what happens. Immediately... An angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. And so I want to clarify this. When I, first, when I read this, I was like, wow, it's just like he's gone. The fact that an angel struck him down doesn't mean that he was killed like by a bolt of lightning or just happened, or the people in the crowd wouldn't necessarily have known that. Um, Luke, who's actually a doctor, makes point to say that he died, not that he was, not, not that he was killed. Um, the Jewish historian Josephus also recorded a corresponding report on what happened, and this is what Josephus said about the same story. When Herod entered the theater, clad in a glittering silver garment, his flattered uh, addressed him as a god. May you be propitious to us. I think that's how you say that word. And if we have hitherto feared you as a man, yet henceforth we agree that you are more than mortal in your being. The king accepted their flattery. At the same time, he was seized by violent internal pains and was carried into his palace where he died. He died after five days of illness. The point is both men are showing that this is God's hand at work. Daniel, think about the Old Testament. Daniel gave us the same message about kings. He said, God changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and set up kings. And when Nebuchadnezzar boasted, and this is Daniel chapter four, is not this great Babylon which I have built with my power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? A voice from, came from God and said, you will eat grass like an ox until you have learned that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. Let's jump ahead. This is what I love. that We see the, the juxtaposition of the two because even two chapters forward, and hopefully I'm not taking this from somebody else in about two weeks, but in chapter 14 of Acts, so we have another illustration. With, uh, so um, uh, Paul, is it Paul and Barnabas? Yeah, Paul, Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra, another one of these cities. 
And so they went into the temple, and they are just preaching, and they end up healing this man who's a cripple. They healed him. Then automatically the crowd around him begins to say, oh, this is like Zeus reincarnated. This is, give him glory. This is the, these are gods here. And immediately they're like, we're having none of this because they realize where the true power comes from. And so we see both sides of the story, but the, the thing is we have to realize attempting to exalt yourself alongside God is a losing battle. Attempting to exalt yourself alongside God is a losing battle. God shows himself the hero again in verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This simple statement underscores how completely, how completely the situation had turned since beginning the chapter. As the chapter begins, it looked as though Herod had a tight grip on things. He had arrested a number of Christians, he executed James, and he imprisoned Peter. At the chap- as the chapter ends, Peter is free again, the gospel is flourishing, and Herod is dead. This is the goal of all that God does, to magnify his wisdom and power and spread the fame of his son who saves us and glorifies his father. Listen, we may feel small and insignificant. We may think that we are overpowered when some of our best leaders are killed on a political whim. We may feel like we've been forgotten or abandoned. The truth is, if we are raided with Jesus, we win. God is the hero in our narrative, and that's not just a suggestion, it's a promise. It's a promise. And we know all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And as many of you know, um, this last year has been really difficult for my family and I. And so after a long battle, uh, my father passed away. As many of you know, my father passed away. He was living up here with us for a while um, and just trying to care for him. And he passed away in, in February. And the last time I remember I, I spoke and got the opportunity just to, to be up here, I talked about my dad was my earthly hero. And that's still very true. Uh, my dad... As difficult as it's been, I'm thankful for it because God has allowed me to enter into, into the, the, the pain and the, the loss of other people's stories in ways that I could never imagine. And I wouldn't change any of it. Even in the midst of our pain, be encouraged. God is still writing your story, and he's the hero we can worship. All right, let's get back together. Point two, the tension we can't escape. If we look at the text, this is the point where where God had enough intersects with Herod's pride. And so C.S. Lewis talks about pride. He defines it as this, a ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. And it's here where the other shoe drops. This is where we find the tension in our lives. Tell me if this ever happened to you. Maybe it's just me. Um, so maybe it's just being in Atlanta. So you're driving down the road 85. It's, any story that starts like this, there's already tension involved, right? You're, you're driving in, in, in Atlanta. 
you're driving down the road and there's always this one person probably on their phone or probably texting, which is, I'm so thankful for July 1st and this new law, but I'm pretty bad about it too, just being honest. Um, so driving down the road, just going on and just runs past you, just like, just with no regard, you got your kids in the car and like no regard for anybody else and just flies past you. What's your first thought? I hope they get a ticket. Like, that's the first thing that I think. I hope they get caught. Like, there's nothing better if you see blue lights flashing and you're just, like, clapping when you get there. Because that's what we think, right? But if we do it, there's a good reason. Like, there's a good reason. Or we all have that one relative, coworker, church member, somebody that we know that is always late. And if, if you know me, I'm, my wife can tell you, I'm highly type A. And, like, I'm always on time. I'm that guy that's almost annoyingly too early. Um... But the thing is, whenever they're late, whenever somebody else is late, we always just assume they're lazy, they're inconsiderate, they just don't have their things together. But however, if we're ever late, if we're ever late, then we always have a really good reason. It's like, well, our kids have been sick, you know, I wanted to make sure to be safe. And so we, we do a really good at justifying if it's us. And I think what we do, and when we see Acts 12, we tend to identify with the ones being persecuted, Okay. The ones crying out, how long, O oh Lord? But let's not forget about the antagonist. For all the comfort we find in knowing that God is the hero in our narrative, this passage needs to be as a sobering reminder that we are more like Herod than we want to admit. And that is an extremely dangerous thing because pride is our greatest problem. And there is no sin, there's no sin in the Bible that God shows more venom towards than pride. Think about it. How did the devil become the devil? I mean, why is Lucifer no longer in heaven? Because of his pride. Over and over again, we see how God deals with the proud. Nebuchadnezzar, Haman, Uzziah, Herod, Ananias, and Sapphira. The reason the pride is so dangerous, it is because that pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. Like, you, you can see other sins. Like, you know in other sins. Like, you don't walk into adultery and go, oh, wait, you're not my spouse. We know, we know about these other sins. We can't all of a sudden see money in our, in our bank account and say, where did that come from? We know when we steal. We know adultery. But when it comes to pride, we don't see it as easy, and that's why it's so dangerous. Pride is the sin most likely to keep you from crying out for a Savior. So continuing on, C.S. Lewis says this, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, but only out of having more than the next person. You may think you're proud of being successful, intelligent, or good-looking, but you're not because when you're surrounded by other people with just as much or more success, intelligence, or looks, you lose all pleasure in them. This is what we see in Herod. His actions are all about himself. More than anything, Herod wants to feel important, respected, and powerful. He wants all the attention. Pride makes you evil. You can't stay angry with someone unless you think you're superior to them. You can't stay angry with somebody unless you think you're better than them. There's no bitterness without pride. So many of us hate snobs. <laughs> this is what's hard for me because this is the worst part. This is great. It was, it was a rough week for me because as you're preparing this type of message, Everything is like, man, I'm that guy. Everything is like, yep, yep, yep. So this is a really tough week for me. So you cannot only hate, you can only hate snobs if you think you're better than them. Pride makes you fearful. And if you're anything like me, you know exactly how things are supposed to be. And since we know what's best, 
If it doesn't happen, we begin to lose our minds. Pride causes us to be opinionated. Pride causes us to be indecisive. And, and Ryan mentioned to it a couple weeks ago, pride doesn't just display itself in arrogance because we have this, this mentality, well, we, we can almost identify what someone with pride looks like. It's that superiority complex. But at the same time, people with an inferiority complex that really struggle, it's also pride. Because whether you say I'm awesome or I'm worthless, guess what? It's still about you. And that's the thing that hits home. Because I think so often we want to just lean on this side. But I think a lot of us are in this other camp. And we, we are more self-effacing. And we don't think it's about us. But the realization is still about us. And that's just the personal effects. How about the social? Racism, imperialism, and excessive nationalism all come from class pride. So what's the cure? God. It is, but it's not like that. Because I think there's a tendency, let's look at it this way. So if I'm closer to God, I'm reading the Bible more, I'm praying more, that will deal with my ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on myself. I'm not going to tell you that, at least not that way, and here's why. If you get somebody really religious, and they come to church, they study their Bible, and they try really hard to pray and obey God, religiosity can kill off those other sins to a great degree. So with lust, to, 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 um, whatever, whatever those sins are, those those non-carbon monoxide sins, but what it does to pride, it's like pouring oil on that fire. There's no pride like religious pride. There's no one proud like Pharisees. If up until now you've been thinking about other people um, who need to hear this, or man, that's, that's, that's true, I know that person, I'd like to warmly welcome you to the club. <laughs> so what are the ways that we need to rethink and transform our language to make it less about us and more about God and others. If you tend to diminish or degrade yourself, how can you begin to see yourself in the way that God has made you? And where are you most vulnerable to pride? If you've ever really met a humble person, you would never think they were humble. All you would think is they're, they're really happy and they're just really interested in you. Now for the resolution. Point three, the resolution we can't remedy on our own. Desperately seeking respect, honor, and glory, Herod wants to make a public spectacle of the fact that the people of Tyre and Sidon are dependent on him. He is the one who controls their food. Needing to feel loved by the people looking for his self-worth and value, Herod allows a contrived flattery of the people to become his ultimate downfall. And this might sound strange, but Herod wasn't seeking the wrong thing from the people. He wasn't. It's something that we all want. I mean, we want to be loved and have an ultimate assurance of who we are and an ultimate assurance of our worth. We need someone like that loving us like that. He didn't seek the wrong thing. And that's why what's wrong with us. We have a problem with pride and, and it drives us crazy. And, and that's why we're all so needy 
because he wasn't, Herod wasn't seeking the wrong thing. He was seeking it from the wrong king. There is a better king. There is a king of ultimate glory that stripped himself of his glory. And when he went to the cross, he was stripped of his father's love, approval, in order to switch places with us. Jesus is the king you can go to because he is at infinite, he at infinite cost to himself reverse places with us. Philippians 2, 4. Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a, cro on a cross. Listen, it's not enough just to say, I believe in God. That doesn't make you humble. What you have to do, embrace, is God coming all the way down and trading places with you. Why? Two things. On one hand, to know and to fully know he had to die for you, that humbles you. That he had to die for you, that humbles you. Then, to know and fully know he was glad to die for you, affirms you infinitely. When we fully grasp these two truths, that he had to die for us and that he did it gladly, our ego finally begins to dissipate because we're resting in the perfect affirmation of the ultimate king. Pride is the illusion that we are confident enough to run our own lives. But the gospel destroys that pride because it tells us we are so lost that Jesus had to die for us. And it destroys our ego because it tells us that nothing we can do will exhaust Jesus' love for us. Once we understand these truths deep within our heart, then and only then will the chains of pride begin to break. Can you imagine how different life would be if we began to grasp this? We would no longer be consumed by our own agendas. Our relationships would be filled with so much more joy. We would no longer need to, to get the last word. Let me tell you the rest of the Buzz Lightyear story. In the end, Buzz does save the day by simply being what he was made to be, a toy. One of the kids in the neighborhood takes him up and attaches a rocket to him. And in the end, that enables Buzz to fly and save the day. And though the boy meant the rockets to cause harm, God meant it for good. Our greatness does not come from our own self-inflated notions, but from God. God does not need us to pretend to be something that we are not. What he wants for us to be is exactly what he made us to be. Sons and daughters resting in the perfect affirmation of the perfect king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us lay aside the weight of wanting to be great. Help us shift our attention off our achievements, status, and reputation, and focus it on Christ alone. Realign our desires from self-serving to sacrificial. As we live alongside our friends, families, and coworkers, Father, enable us to 
find opportunities to exalt your name. In Jesus' name we pray.